Hello everyone, this is Mark Rofley, aka The Pain Guy, host of The Pain Pod, where we like to say, come one, come all to The Pain Pod. So a little bit about myself, uh, my family actually has a vineyard over in Italy, and we have eight pharmacists in our family or family. So yes, Thanksgiving dinner should probably have CE credit, right? Now, as far as my background, I worked for a decade with CVS Pharmacy, climbing the corporate ladder, and then was with Humana Healthcare for about five or six years doing telephonic MTM, uh, which uh, led me to developing an MTM pain management program with the WVU School of Pharmacy, and that became a managed care program as well too, which all culminates with my current positions of being director of experiential learning and a clinical pain addiction pharmacist at our W Medicine Pain Clinic. Here on the Pain Pod, we'll be covering pain and addiction like no other. All the headlines, all the time. We'll have some fun, folks. So come one, come all to the Pain Pod. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Let's Pharmanize, a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Shane Garretson. I'm Cal Vandegrift. And I'm Mickey Ferguson. And today we're going to talk about the true story of Rasputin. All that and more on Let's Pharmanize. The why? That's Let's Go in Russian. Oh, nice. Okay, cool. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. So we all know the story of Rasputin. Born to a peasant family in a Siberian village of Pokrovskaya. I need the spelling, but... Pokrovskaya is probably correct. You were you're 99% of the way there. All right. Much of Rasputin's early life remains a mystery, as there wasn't a whole lot of great record-keeping back then, especially for those born into poverty. Rasputin married a local girl and had several children, but would frequently go on pilgrimages that would grow longer and cover more distance as he became more and more fanatical with his faith. He became very involved with religious life and developed a reputation as an occultist and a zealot. He abandoned his wife and children and relocated to St. Petersburg, where his reputation as a healer with mystical powers made their way to Tsar Nicholas II and his wife, Alexandra. Alexandra took a particular interest in old Raspi, as his healing powers might come in handy. Do you guys know why? Didn't their child have some sort of... It wasn't anemia. It was the other thing relating to blood. It Uh, was. It was... Hemophilia. Yeah, that's the one I was the other blood disease. thinking of but didn't know. Yeah, Alexei. Alexei Romanov had hemophilia, a um, recessive disease, genetic disease, and it was passed down on the mother's line, and, and he being the, the son, he carried it. I don't remember if these were actually related to the Habsburgs at all, but I know the Habsburgs were extremely inbred. Right, they were famously inbred. I don't think so. Yeah, but it doesn't surprise me that any royal line, especially this late in history, is going to be susceptible to recessive trait diseases. Yeah, definitely. So we're going to talk about two physiological oddities of history, this being the first, Alexei Romanov. 
the young son of Tsar Nicholas and Alexandra, had what's now been identified as hemophilia B. His remains were examined when they were discovered in 2007, and this was determined through genetic testing. One of the great historical interesting factoids about this whole situation is that they didn't find Alexei and one of the sisters' remains until 2007. So for all these years, it was speculated that Alexei was still alive, and this was like the whole reasoning for the the movie Anastasia was that like one of the sisters was they thought was like still alive living somewhere Whoa. my curse make each of them pay but one little girl got away little Anya beware Rasputin's away And then also, like, the reason for the ambiguous ending of the, the made-for-TV movie with Alan Rickman, uh, Rasputin. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but Alan Rickman played Rasputin in, like, an HBO movie. And the ending of it was, like, it sort of hinted that, like, Alexei might have escaped. He didn't. They found—they definitely found his body in 2007. Like, it was interesting. They just kind of—the conspirators of the murderers just kind of buried it, like, somewhere else for the intent of, like— hiding it just better just to like make it look like i don't know i don't know it was weird but anyway they definitely found it i heard that the hypothesis behind burying the bodies in different places was so that they could have plausible deniability because right after the reds had their whole revolution the whites and the czarists came in and were like yo uh we want you know this to be a monarchy again or at least a, a democratic institution so the reds could be like well we never found alexei alexei's body so he could still be out there you guys can go look for him mm -hmm. and i think that and to maybe distance themselves from even other people in the uh their own faction from finding out that they were the ones that killed alexei they could pin it on the whites if right. they really wanted to the story of the the assassination of the Romanov family is really, really fascinating. It's really convoluted and like, and also really tragic. Um, not necessarily what we're here to talk about today, but if you're interested in that, just read like the some of the articles online about it. They're really interesting. And the the two people that found the remains in 2007 were just internet sleuths who were like, let's look at these old documents and like read these testimonies. And like they found that one of the testimonies was like, yeah, we buried the bodies somewhere further down the road, this many kilometers down the road. And they were like, let's dig there, and they found the bodies. So hemophilia B is a blood clotting disorder, wherein there's a mutation of the gene factor 9, which is an important component of the coagulation cascade. The condition is recessive and linked to the X gene. It was really common in Alexander's family, and they discovered that Alexei was affected by the disorder actually on the day of his birth, when they cut the umbilical cord and he wouldn't stop bleeding for 48 hours. Not only do people with hemophilia bleed profusely when injured or cut, but they bruise easily and suffer idiopathic nosebleeds and urinary tract bleeding, as well as bleeding to the joints internally, which can be really painful. There's currently no cure for hemophilia B and with modern treatment, people can live normal lives, just taking care to address cuts and scrapes really quickly, and in the case of surgery, they can receive IV infusion of factor 9 or even use tranexamic acid to support clotting. In 1908, they did not have these medications. Can you tell me what drug they did have that was invented in Germany in 1890 and was gaining popularity across Europe during this time? Not even a speculation. You did an episode about it. Oh, I still don't know. Come on, man. What was your... What uh, Was it... Was it in your history of Merck, I think? Bayer Pharmaceuticals. What was the, what's their big claim to fame? It can't be aspirin. aspirin. It's freaking aspirin. Okay, it was I was going to say aspirin. Yeah. In fact, Bayer brings the fastest, most gentle to the stomach relief you can get for painful cold discomforts and fever. Whenever you have a cold, take your doctor's advice. Take aspirin. Take Bayer aspirin. The best aspirin the world has ever known. It's aspirin. Yeah. Okay. In 1890, they didn't have it before then. No, I think it was invented in 1890. I can't. I it should have been I, way older than that. I we, think we could knew, swear you mentioned it. Maybe we knew Willow Bark had 
uh, analgesic properties for a long time. Right. Yeah. We've known like uh, had like ideas, but I guess it wasn't able to be synthetically manufactured okay. until 1890. Synthetic aspirin. Yeah, synthetically yeah. manufactured in 1890. Sure, we like we had ideas about it, like oh, this stuff makes my heart shin feel better, you know, stuff like that. So Alexi was receiving aspirin from his doctors. Can you think about how this might be a problem? Would make things way yeah, worse. Not help. It would make things worse. He's already got a clotting disorder. Aspirin's going to bind to the platelets irreversibly and inhibit their abilities even further. Aspirin is excellent at preventing clots from forming by its activity as an irreversible platelet binder. Irreversible meaning it lasts for the lifespan of the platelet, which is about 10 days. So Alexei had two things making his blood very stubborn. Lifetime genetic hemophilia and now an unknown dose of aspirin, probably high and probably not the most well-crafted. This was clearly only making his hemophilia worse, but the royal family doctors didn't realize this, obviously, as the antiplatelet effects weren't really elucidated until the 70s and 80s, somewhere around that time frame. I'm not sure exactly when. But regardless, Alexei, who was four years old at the time, was really sick. His hemophilia was quite severe, and he would often even have difficulty walking because of the spontaneous joint bleeds called hemarthrosis, if I'm saying that correctly. Hemarthrosis, that sounds right. And there's photos of him on a three-wheeled bicycle and sometimes even in a wheelchair due to his condition, just because it was so difficult to move around. Do you mean a tricycle? <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah, a tricycle. Sure. It bears more resemblance to like a bicycle though. Oh, so it's not like the, the tricycle that we know today. I guess it is. Okay. Yeah. It's a tricycle, a three wheeled bicycle, whatever. I would, okay, that's I would, it. I think it would serve you well to change that to tricycle because bicycle literally just means two wheels. Whatever. I'm just thinking about bears on unicycles because we're talking about Russia, honestly. <laughs> so, okay, so moving on. His <laughs> parents were, were very protective of him. Bears on... What? Have you not heard that? He's heard that. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. All, all Russian people are just bears on unicycles. I'm not... How have you I've never heard that? I've never heard that. Okay. Is that like a joke? It's supposed to be. Oh, okay. It's just about stereotypes. It's, about just, a, it's just a stereotype. I'm just being racist towards because Russians because Mickey's in the room. A lot of Russian people who are like really artsy and go into the circus and there are bears in Russia. So Bears oh, can ride they? unicycles. Yeah, that, There's that, a lot of famous Russian like trapeze artists and cir like circus people. I can't remember any of them because it's not my jam. But so I know in short, I'm just an a-hole. That's what it is. Okay. Yeah. So back to Alexei Romanov. His parents were very, very protective of him. When Alexandra summoned Rasputin to the royal palace, being very superstitious and hating modern medicine, the first thing Rasputin did was forbid the royal doctors from continuing to give him any medicine, including aspirin. The current bleeding spell, which was an internal hemorrhage, abated really quickly, and Rasputin quickly won the favor of the entire royal palace. They, of course, attributed the speedy recovery to Rasputin's healing powers and the miracle of prayer. But I think we know what really happened. And now, a word from our sponsor. On to the second physiological oddity, Rasputin himself. Before we get to that, I must make you aware that people do not like Rasputin. Except for Mickey. Mickey loves Rasputin. <laughs> Excuse me? Mickey, what's your opinion of Rasputin? Uh, I think you kind of... Uh, it's really hard to say whether or not he was just a charlatan or if he was literally just mad. What we would call uh, mentally disturbed at this probably a few years I'm ago. I'm going with the lab. I don't know what the PC term for what Rasputin was because I don't have a diagnosis for him. He was unhygienic though. Like I know he there's was, stories of like like him just leaving food in his beard. And he was dirty. Everyone in this era is unhygienic. No, but like especially people, like unhygienic. people disliked him because he was unhygienic. I Even read some of that, that like the Felix Yusupov's memoir and he would talk about like how gross and dirty he was, but at the same time really sexy. Mm -hmm. 
and charismatic. It's like those guys that play in like grunge bands that like never take care of themselves and I know exactly yeah, what like you're the, talking about. Like the Big it's, Lebowski yeah. types. Yeah. Yeah. They're all like Rasputins. Yeah. Basically. And he was like big and tall too. And he was like a serious womanizer, but we'll get to that. So he's got the royal family in his pocket. And with this comes a new title, the Royal Lamplighter. And even a new name, which was just Rasputin New. That's the best he could come up with. I hate that. Rasputin was a very controversial figure and no stranger to corruption. Did he, did he just be like, I deserve a name change? New Rasputin. Ras- basically, the translation is literally just Rasputin New. So it's Novo Rasputin, or is it Rasputin Novo? Or... I think it's the second one. Rasputin Novo. That's so weird. It is weird. I'm I'm sorry. That's like even by Rasputin. I can look it up real quick weird. to check. Rasputin's new name. Rasputin Novi. N O V I Y. Yeah. Novi. Okay. Yeah. That's same family. It's <laughs> just Rasputin New. <laughs> weird dude. Okay. He was famous for accepting bribes and sexual favors in exchange for prayers and his mystical counsel. This made the nobility really angry. They thought he made them all look bad and thought he was exerting influence on the Tsar, which he was. There were even rumors at the time that Rasputin was having an affair with the Tsar's wife, although historians today tend to dispute that fact. But if you listen to Boney M's song, Rasputin, you know that song? Yeah. Ra, ra, Rasputin. Get copyright striked. We're going to put that song in the podcast. Oh, dope. Do it. That way we don't have to listen to that rendition. (laughs) Fast forward to 1916. Felix Yusupov, a Russian prince, was like, yo, somebody got to do something about Rasputin. So Yusupov and his conspirators hatch a somewhat half-baked plan to invite Rasputin over and dispatch with him permanently. Their plan is to poison him with potassium cyanide. Potassium cyanide is pretty infamous. It's been used in many successful and failed high-profile assassinations and murders throughout history, from Hitler to the Tylenol murders, yeah, and many more. Rasputin is just another name in a list associated with this deadly poison. Cyanide exhibits its toxic properties by interrupting the electron transport chain, which is responsible for cellular respiration. Specifically, cyanide binds irreversibly to the ferric iron in cytochrome C oxidase. This stops the electron transport chain at step three of five steps. Without ETC, you got no ATP. Remember that. This results in difficulty breathing, headache, confusion, seizure, loss of consciousness, and eventually cardiac arrest. Back to Yusupov. Yusupov befriends Rasputin, knowing that he's going to use this friendship to take advantage of Rasputin and eventually take him out. He seeks out Rasputin's counsel. They have lots of drinking wine and tea sessions together. Yusupov even plays guitar and sings for Rasputin, which Rasputin loves. Rasputin was very charismatic. Even his enemies acknowledged this. Here's an excerpt from a testimony from Prince Yusupov himself about Rasputin. Oh, by the way, I want you to... So this event occurs when Rasputin is sort of like putting Yusupov in a trance. He's got Yusupov laying down on a couch and he's like, like leaning over him, like rubbing his body or something. Okay. I can, I can dig it. It's, it's hot stuff. Really spicy. It's like 50 shades of of red. That would come after. That was good. That was, that was pretty good. That was cute. Because communism, red. Yeah, I got it. Okay. That was, uh, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Here's back to Yusupov. 
<clears throat> Rasputin had tremendous hypnotic power. I felt as if some active energy were pouring heat like a warm current into my whole being. I fell into a torpor, and my body grew numb. I tried to speak, but my tongue no longer obeyed me, and I gradually slipped into a drowsy state, as though a powerful narcotic had been administered to me. All I could see was Rasputin's glittering eyes, two phosphorescent beams of light melting into a great luminous ring which at times drew nearer and then moved farther away. Finally, the fateful day arrives. Yusupov has a somewhat elaborate plan to get Rasputin in the basement of his palace where they've staged the room to look like there was recently a quiet dinner party. So I've simultaneously called this plan half-baked and elaborate. He put a ton of effort into decorating the basement to look like halfway through a party. But they didn't have any plan afterwards on what to do with the body or how exactly to even kill him if the poison failed. So he likes put a lot of effort into the decor and the flair but then nothing into the, like, the actual execution. He got the details right. Yeah. He was, he was over, over analyzing the details yeah. without, you know, figuring out the, the second half. Like he had his servants like move all this furniture and like decorate the, this basement. And like they brought this like really nice ebony desk drawer thing. And like he keeps talking about it in the memoir. He was like Rasputin was fascinated by my, my ebony armoire. And I'm like, come on, let's move on. Hey. That would have been a real pretty penny back in the day. I'm sure it was, yeah. Just shipping ebony all the way up to St. Petersburg. That's true. Not yeah. cheap. And on the point of this was a half-baked plan, how good was toxicology at this time? Could they tell if someone had been poisoned with potassium cyanide back then? They could. In the autopsy, they actually, and I'll get to that. Actually, I don't know if I mentioned this, but they did not detect any cyanide in the autopsy. Well, he wasn't, well, I don't want to spoil it, but he wasn't killed with cyanide, right? I thought he was but shot. But if he drank something with cyanide, that would show Let me up. keep going, and then okay. I'll open okay. it up. You guys, have, these are good questions, though. Let me keep going. Okay. okay. They even have music playing upstairs to sell the effects, specifically Yankee Doodle on repeat. I don't know why, but that's, like, mentioned in the memoir. They're like, Yankee Doodle is playing um, upstairs. Are you serious? I'm serious. Yeah, it was hey, Yankee Doodle. It sounds like my own personal hey, version of hell. 1910s, that was a bop back in the it day. It really was, For yeah. For 140 years, it was such a bop. Yankee Doodle, 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 Yankee Doodle, so a physician who was one of the co-conspirators sprinkles cyanide in the cakes and in the wine glasses, and the amount is unclear, but the doctor says it's enough to kill several men. The LD-100, not the LD-50, the LD-100, which is the dose at which 100% of people ingesting the drug will die for potassium cyanide, is 300 to 400 milligrams, which is a pretty small, pretty low LD-100. We can assume that there's probably a gram or so of potassium cyanide sprinkled throughout all the cakes in the wine glasses. Yusupov sits across from Rasputin and watches as Rasputin eats cake after cake and drinks several glasses of poisoned wine, and nothing happens. Yusupov is flabbergasted, so he goes upstairs and tells his cronies that they need a new plan. One of his boys says, let's just jump him and choke him out. Yusupov says, nah, somebody get me a Glock, I'm finna get this fool. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes back down and he shoots Rasputi in the chest. The boys hear the shot and go rushing in and accidentally turn off the lights as they enter. This actually happened. It was depicted in Yusupov's memoir. So many things go wrong during this whole escapade. It's like a, like a slapstick comedy. So a few minutes later, after Rasputin falls down dead, he gets back up and starts fighting them and manages to escape from the palace and run across the courtyard because they left the door unlocked. There, they shoot him again several more times until he is dead, and then they throw his body into the river.
Let's talk about that cyanide situation. Earlier I mentioned that cyanide inhibits the electron transport chain. Potassium cyanide itself isn't what binds to the iron, thus inhibiting cytochrome C oxidase. So Rasputin is presumed to have the ETC powering his cells with ATP, like any human, so how did he survive ingesting enough poison to kill several men? One of the theories relies on presumed chemical qualities of cyanide, and the assumption that cyanide is activated by stomach acid. It is rumored that Rasputin suffered from achlorhydria, or the inability to produce hydrochloric acid in the stomach. The hydrochloric acid would be the hydrogen donator activating the potassium cyanide and enabling the nitrile ion to do its dirty deed. The problem with this theory is that it just is not true. Potassium cyanide doesn't require hydrochloric acid to activate, and can activate with any potential proton donor, even just water. Then that protonated nitrile, which really wants to find some metal, binds to the first metal it can find with the highest affinity, the ferric iron in your mitochondria. Another theory that I came up with and then immediately disproved all by myself, proving that I am in fact the perfect scientist, <laughs> is that Rasputin may have suffered from methemoglobinemia. This is a genetic disorder in which instead of the usual ferrous iron, which is incorporated into the heme molecule, the heme is composed of ferric iron, or Fe3, which has lower affinity for oxygen and a very high affinity for... Carbon dioxide? Cyanide. Hmm. So, this may have, in theory, given Rasputin slight resistance to cyanide poisoning, with the cyanide binding not to the ferric in the mitochondria, but to the ferric in his red blood cells, where it would be processed and excreted by the kidneys. The problem with this is that if his red blood cells had enough ferric iron to bind to all the cyanide, he'd have no way to distribute oxygen in his blood. Another sign of severe methemoglobinemia is cyanosis, which is evidenced by the Fugate family, a family in Kentucky in the mid-1800s, who gained some fame for the oddity of their blue skin caused by chronic cyanosis. Nowhere is it described that Rasputin ever had blue skin. So this theory is super unlikely, but it was fun to entertain. <laughs> There's also a theory that the cyanide used for the poisoning wasn't stored in proper conditions and was allowed to become damp and unstable, although there's not any evidence to support this either, necessarily. All in all, the most likely way that Rasputin survived cyanide poisoning is that he wasn't poisoned at all. If you read Yusupov's memoir, which I read parts of it, it reads like a glamorous and exaggerated adventure spy novel. Yusupov could have fabricated the story about the cyanide poisoning to accentuate Rasputin's evilness and invincibility. When Rasputin rises from the grave after having been shot the first time, Yusupov likens this reincarnation to having been fueled by the pure evilness that is Rasputin. It's also entirely possible that the doctor got cold feet and supplied fake cyanide, as he did testify in a later report. However, this testimony could have been falsified to prove his own innocence. The whole story story is just a little too dramatic for me to believe, and there's no plausible reason for Rasputin to have been able to genuinely survive cyanide poisoning. What do you guys think? What do you think is the most plausible explanation? I'll let you go because mine's going to be interesting. I'd think that he just straight up wasn't poisoned. You think so? It probably was a placebo or it just didn't even happen. Yeah. Um, if it did happen, the doctor could have easily been sympathetic to Rasputin because he's like, oh, this guy, yeah, he's kind of making me look bad, but he's also like helping people out or whatever. So... Mm. Here's the thing. Um, I think it's none of the above, actually. None of the, not even, he wasn't, I believe they did try to poison him. Mm -hmm. I. Th but here's something that I just so happen to remember from my Tylenol Murders episode way back in the day. How does, how, when, when plants are presented with high levels of cyanide environmentally, do you know how they clear it? Plants? Mm-hmm. Mm -mm. They produce ribose, which is a sugar. What they sprinkled in into Rasputin's food, food and drink, mm -hmm. cake and wine, 
all always contain high levels of sugar. Sugar actually deactivates cyanide in the body mm -hmm. as a toxic metabolite. My theory is if they just set up in a, a dinner party and then sprinkled some cyanide in it, over time, before they would have got down to the basement, it would have deactivated. So by the time he was drinking or eating the food, it wasn't active enough to kill him. That is actually something that people have explored. But the specific nature of ribose is that it's a special reducing sugar. That along with sucrose and one other sugar, I think... But the sugar that would be in the cake and the wine would be glucose. No, no, that was just an example I was, yeah. I was just posing. But no, glucose can do the same thing. Glucose, sucrose, fructose, and ribose are all the four ones that can reduce. Can they all, all of them do it? Mm -hmm. hmm. That's my theory, at least. I think that's a pretty solid theory. Um, I'm trying to think. Does hemlock have cyanide in it? Or is that a completely different poison? I don't know. Let me look that up real quick. Because if, it, if hemlock is the same as cyanide then they served uh socrates a wine sprinkled with hemlock no it's a completely different so i just found it so um one theory about rasputin is that uh sugars when when combined with cyanide those carbonyl groups in the sugar create an immediate antidote because the the reaction between a carbonyl group and a and poison cyanide forms something called a cyanohydrin hmm. which is typically just excreted through the urine interesting okay yeah that's actually really good input cal i did not even consider that that's pretty solid what can i say one out of every 10 times i get something <laughs> close to accurate oh when you're right you're really right i don't know i i feel like you know that's that's my top theory because that's what i was thinking the whole time you were talking about the theories but if i had to choose another one i would say they probably were just I mean, I believe they sprinkled the cyanide, but mm. I feel like there would have to be some other metabolistic something in Rasputin that would allow him to clear cyanide. Or maybe he was just a magic healer after all. Maybe we were all wrong. Just a, a point of interest that I noticed during that story. You said they shot him multiple times. Yes. So the cartridges that they would have most likely used at the time would have been the 765 Nagant? No, 762 by 38 uh, Nagant, which is a notoriously weak caliber. You can actually mount a suppressor onto the revolver that fires that cartridge, and it will be silent because it is, I believe, naturally a subsonic round. I'm honestly shocked that they even got multiple rounds out of Nagant because those things were terrible for locking and jamming. Yes, uh, the rimmed cartridges in revolvers were not very good for reliability. Let's just have, let's gunmanize. So I'm still, I'm reading still about that glucose thing. And glucose itself, while it could potentially have that ability, it's not the best reducing agent mm -hmm. of the sugars. Well, the question is because the, wine is one thing. Cake is wine. another thing. Cake is going to be glucose. But wine might have a lot of fructose in it, depending on what kind of wine that they gave Madeira them. wine. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I'm not a wine connoisseur. No, me either. Me neither, but that was Rasputin's favorite, hmm. old pooty. So this, this even touches on that, but it says, however, as yet glucose on its own is not an officially acknowledged antidote to cyanide poisoning. So it's definitely another possibility, especially if they wouldn't necessarily be deactivated in the cake, but perhaps when he ingested them both at the same all time, the same. and it's all like, you know, swirling around and, and frothing because he like got up and started dancing. It's possible, but I think it's actually more likely to 
uh, have that reaction on the cake because it's localized. If you ingest it, it automatically dissociates into different parts, hmm. and then those those two things might not interact. Plus, we don't know like if uh, Rasputin had a horribly high uh, blood glucose level. Like if Isn't that's something that? to also consider is if he had an insane blood glucose, or if he was uh, diabetic and he had like a glucose of three or four hundred. So you raise a good point with the glucose, especially in the cake, and especially if he was diabetic. Because he was not the healthiest dude. Not at all. He was he was a skinnier guy though. He wasn't fat. Mm, he was in his earlier years. He was skinny. Yeah, he he got Once like he got to the good life. Oh, did he get did he get? He's fun? a little bigger. He's he's big and he's like super tall too. Yeah, he's like six mm. four, six five. Oh, almost as really? tall as me. I didn't know that. <laughs> I also didn't know you were six five. Somehow. Yeah, Rasputin, uh, Gregory Rasputin knew six foot four. Wow, got that Abe Lincoln height. He's massive. Yeah, he's an intimidating guy. And at this point in time, when he was killed, he was at the age of 47. So after like a, you know, decades of poor diet and lots of wine, he was a, quite a drinker. I think he could definitely have developed type 2 diabetes at I mean, this point. Anyone of status in Russia in that time was a heavy drinker. Yeah. Um, because during, I believe it was actually for a couple hundred years, the crown actually had a monopoly on the production of vodka, and that's what most people drank was vodka because it kept really well. You didn't have to refrigerate it, and you could use it for other things like, you know, what, what distilling if, it and disinfecting wounds. What if his liver was cirrhotic? They couldn't. I mean, <laughs> We're going like, way, you know, like all yeah, these. I think that's like, a little bit too far. Maybe. Because, I mean, 47, you're just going to notice that fibrosis. Depends on how much he's drinking. I don't know. I mean, even heavy, heavy drinkers don't die usually at 47 from cirrhosis. I don't know. Usually that catches on mid-50s. Maybe if 50s. he's a diabetic and also has his hemoglobinemia, whatever, and has just a, a nice tolerance to cyanide. Just a, a super a superhero. <laughs> so I'm not finding anything about cyanide, about diabetes being resistant to cyanide because of the high glucose. But it would make sense because if you've got, well, well, I mean, it makes sense glucose why you wouldn't be able to find anything reducing on agent. That. So maybe it's a combination of factors. Maybe the cyanide's poorly made. Maybe it wasn't kept well. If it was truly cyanide, and then potentially it could have been partially negated in the cakes themselves and then he's also diabetic so in these in the combination of this perfect storm of factors he survived the cyanide poisoning well he didn't survive very only well. to die yeah. <laughs> from another kind of poisoning lead poisoning from the bullets yeah yep yeah, that's no. how that works right yeah. mm -hmm. and those would have been lead bullets they weren't using jacketed bullets yet what's what's that clip i'm i'm thinking about you know what i'm talking about it's like we found his weakness bullets Something like that. Hold on. Oh yeah, Su I, yeah. Supremely. I know that movie. Oh, there it is. Right. Unimaginative. Hold on. LL Cool J said this. LL Cool J, one of my heroes. This is like CSI or something. Yes, we oh. found out his weakness. Bullets. <laughs> That's exactly what they said after they shot him. That's yeah. what Felix Yusupov said. Yeah. Say it with a Russian accent. Looks like we found out his one weakness. Bullets. <laughs> That's exactly what Felix Yusupov has in his memoir. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's the last line of the memoir. <laughs> Maybe some can outsmart me. Perhaps. But no one can outrun Bullet. Did Yusupov get in trouble for murdering this guy, by the way? No, he lived until, like, the age of 80 and died in, like, Paris. Unbelievable. Just on, like, permanent vacation. Well, I mean, people hated Rasputin. 
Well, I mean, for fair. And then they reason. went and they killed the, the whole Romanov family. Yeah. And then the communists took That's over. That's a whole other story. People though. really didn't like them either. Which doesn't make any sense because uh, Tsar Nicholas was played by Ian McKellen in the movie, and he's a cool guy. Rasputin can't be that bad then. You said Rasputin was, was played by? Alan Rickman, yeah. Alan Rickman. <laughs> I don't know who. Is that the guy? You don't know who That's Alan Rickman is? Harry Potter. Yeah, he plays Harry Potter. I knew it. Yeah. yeah he is what? Harry Potter. That's him. He's Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> you know Alan Rickman, right? He's Snape, right? Yeah, he's Snape. Okay, I thought so. Oh. I don't know names of actors. I've seen one half of the first Harry Potter movie. <clears throat> That's just... And I laughed so bad that Sophia made me turn it off. So this was recent? Yeah. I've never seen Harry Potter. I never read the books. Never. None of that. Too busy cleaning yeah. dishes in the restaurant <laughs> at 13. <laughs> Too busy... Uh, Watching the Cubs lose. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music.